you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. This is on page 829 of the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 24, and this morning we'll look at simply the first two verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit now as we come to study your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Lord, we ask that He would open this Word to us. We pray that He would teach it to our hearts, that He would lead us on and guide us in our studies, that we might hear the voice of God as you speak to us in your Word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the end of, of Matthew chapter 3 uh, is one of the most melancholy parts of of Matthew's gospel. Having just gone through a, a debate that began when Jesus entered the temple back in chapter 21, verse 23, a debate that has, I think, been thrilling to, to watch and to listen to as Jesus has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with his opponent and as he's, he has engaged their various attempts to, to trap him and, and entrap him using various tactics and topics, both theological and political. There's been something, I think, tremendously exciting to, to sit on the sidelines, to go through these chapters and, and watch Jesus, to listen to Jesus as He has masterfully countered His opponents, and He has literally left them speechless, just as He has left the wider audience, Matthew tells us, marveling. These chapters, chapters 21, 22, 23, they are they're exciting chapters to read. They're, there's something thrilling about watching this, this sparring as these, as these two triumphs go to war, as these two kingdoms launch against each, each other. And, and with verse 36 of chapter 23, it's clear, I think, that in this battle between King Jesus and the religious power brokers, by, by verse 36, it's clear that it is Jesus who is the unquestioned uh, victor. Jesus concludes this, this battle. He concludes this debate, and, and there is absolutely no question in the minds of Matthew's reader that Jesus has won. He stunned his opponents into silence. He's left the crowd absolutely marveling. But of course, there's no triumphalism that follows. There's no celebration that we might have expected. Instead, what follows immediately on the conclusion of this debate is, is a portion of Scripture that is incredibly sorrowful and, and melancholy. Following the, the closing remarks that Jesus makes to the the crowd first warning them not to follow the scribes and the, the Pharisees. 
And then that prophetic condemnation that he levies against the scribes and the Pharisees themselves, in which he effectively prosecutes them for failing to execute their duty as the shepherds of Israel, following the conclusion to that debate, we get to verses 37 and 39, which we looked at halfway through December, and we get to this passage that's really heart breaking. As Jesus mourns the state of first century Judaism for which Jerusalem is symbolic. Do you remember those, those verses? Just, just maybe on the other side of your page, if your Bible's like mine, we hear Jesus mourning, lamenting, crying out, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus mourns over the spiritual state of the holy capital, which instead of being the, the epicenter of the messianic hopes as it should have been, had become by now the very place in which the gospel was so hated, and the place in which God was so resented that the messengers of God, the, the prophets first, and now the Son of God Himself, it is the very place of their execution. While maintaining this, this veneer, of religious piety and devotion, which, which used the right words and went through the right actions. But Jesus has just encountered in His debate with the leaders of the temple, what it's revealed is that underneath it all was this, was this fatal self-centeredness. It revealed that at the core lay this radical self-focus that was willing to even try and make God into their servant, to try and posture and position so that they could twist the arm of God so that He would then give them what they wanted. The resentment, the hostility that Jesus has received in Jerusalem has revealed that their religion was nothing more than a hollow shell. And, and that devastating reality is encapsulated with that simple short statement that Jesus makes in chapter 23, verse 38, when He says, See, your house is left desolate. You understand what He's saying. They had so twisted and so corrupted their religion. And, and with it, they had so twisted and corrupted the the temple, that it was no longer God's house. It was, it was their house. This temple was no longer the great monument to redemption that God had established it to be, but now it was this, this hollow monument to their own selfish idolatry, this, this building, this grand and glorious edifice everything about which testified to the love and the grace of God for His people. 
Right, everything about the temple declared the gospel. Everything about the temple spoke of the glory and the holiness of the one who dwelt within it. Its position in Jerusalem meant that it declared abroad the, the gospel of grace, that here is the most holy God dwelling in the midst of his people. The temple declaring that Israel's God is Emmanuel. He's God with them, not remote, not foreign, not distant, not elevated, not cosmic, but, but they're dwelling in the midst of His people. But Jesus says in verse 38 that that temple's been abandoned. It's been left desolate, or, or to paraphrase the words of an old Scottish minister, it had been left cold, drear, and death damp now that the king had departed from those hallowed halls. This glorious palace of grace stood desolate, a testimony to the fact that the king had been rejected by his own, a testimony no longer to the glory of God among his people, but an empty palace that testified to the rebellion of his people. And as Jesus leaves this temple and He crosses the Kidron Valley to go to the Mount of Olives, He addresses His disciples directly and He begins to explain to them what this all means when it comes to the establishment of His kingdom, that kingdom that He has been teaching them about for the past three years. And it begins, we see here, with a seemingly idle comment by the disciples. Right after those melancholy verses at, at the end of chapter 23, you remember when we noted them, it seemed that, that, that Jesus says those words at the end of chapter 23 with no specific audience in mind. They read almost just like a private utterance, like just something he says to himself as he gazes out over Jerusalem. But it seems the disciples heard it. And it seems that having heard it, they, they don't know what to say. They walk over through the temple precincts with Jesus as they go through the, through the east gate, as they go down into the Kidron Valley. Imagine that Jesus' sense of sorrow was, was palpable, and so the, the disciples don't say much. They don't say much to Jesus. They don't say much to one another. But, but it appears that at least one of them, probably Peter, if we're honest, just had to break the silence. And so he points out to Jesus just how wonderful the, the buildings of the temple are. Now Matthew doesn't quote him, but, but Mark does, quotes this disciple, whoever he was. And this disciple said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Right? And you understand, that's a, that's a throwaway comment. It's, a, it's an idle comment. It's, it's just something to break the silence, like, like talking about, about the weather. Because it's just so obviously true. The temple was this, this magnificent structure. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, describes it for us. And he says, The outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight 
And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would from the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. This temple was unimaginably glorious. It was magnificent. And so just like speaking about the weather, this comment made by the disciple about the temple must have just seemed like something innocuous to talk about, something that's so obviously true that it will break the silence but not do much else. But in response, Jesus says something to them that never in their wildest wildest of imaginations would they ever have expected Him to say. Jesus answers them, and He says to them in verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus responds and uses this little idle comment. It's an opportunity to press home to His disciples more of the significance and the implications of all that they have just seen take place in the temple. Jesus says to them that despite its impressiveness, despite its beauty, despite its seeming strength and permanence, A day is coming when this monolithic structure will crumble to the ground like a house of cards and not one of its stones will be left standing. A day is coming when it will be utterly destroyed, when its glory will be ground into the dust of the earth. A day is coming, Jesus says, when this cold, drear, death, damp, empty palace will simply be left to the wrecking ball and resigned to the annals of history. It is a stark and a shocking thing for Jesus to say. And the disciples don't know what to do with it. Notice there is a conspicuous silence between verses 2 and 3. It seems that, that what Jesus says just knocks the wind out of the disciples. And I think this is probably another one of these moments. And as we have seen, they don't happen infrequently. I think this is one of these moments where the disciples coming out of this debate, having heard Jesus, having seen Jesus with his opponents, they, they they now think, we know what's going on. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's going to do. And Jesus says this, and it whips the carpet out from underneath them, and suddenly... They have no idea what's going on. Look how Matthew writes about this. It seems that that having said this as they cross the the temple courts, the disciples don't have anything to say in response. Jesus says this to them, and they go down, they go across the Kidron Valley, they go up the Mount of Olives, and it's not until they've gone up on the Mount of Olives 
that they get their thoughts back together again, and they're finally able to say something in response and say to Jesus, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? And it's, it's a response that says, we, we have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Right? We can understand their confusion, can't we? After all, the temple is the, the very central point of everything that they believed. The temple was the very epitome of everything that they believed about God and everything that they understood about themselves and everything that they understood about salvation. The temple was the encapsulation of Israel's hope. Here is, here is the, the hope of a God who is willing to accept a substitute to die in the place of a sinner. Here is the hope of the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of that substitute. Here is the hope of reconciliation with God through that forgiveness of sins. Here is the hope of a return to Eden. Here is the hope of the entry into the true promised land. Here is the hope of rest for their souls in a world of crushing evil. The temple breathed the hope of the gospel. And now here was Jesus on the heels of his victory over his opponents. Jesus, who they are now more convinced than ever, is indeed the long-promised, anticipated, prefigured Messiah who has come to bring all of God's covenant promises to their glorious fulfillment in the inauguration of his kingdom. And he says to them, what it means is that this temple's going to be destroyed. It's, it's going to be raised to the ground. What, what could they say to that? What could you say to that? Destroying the temple, something that's done by God's enemies, not by God. And as Israel had seen firsthand, and as the Babylonians had come in and swept in, it, it was something that the enemies of God does. They come in, they, they destroy the temple. It was something they'd seen again as the exiles had returned and tried to rebuild that temple and face that opposition seemingly at every turn. It's the enemies of God who, re, who, who destroy the temple. It's God who builds the temple. Right? And so how on earth are they to reconcile who Jesus is? The great conquering son of David who is here to establish a kingdom in which the people of God are granted rest from their enemies with this, the statement that this, that seemingly the ultimate act of God's enemies is just about to take place. What, what do you say? And so they ask Jesus this question eventually of, of when it will happen, what does it mean? And as you'll see next week, when we come to look at Jesus' answer, He doesn't answer that question directly. He'll go on and warn them about all the things that must take place during the end times. That is the period between the ascension of Jesus and His return. Jesus will go on to explain how the, the kingdom that He is about to establish will not mean temporal rest and peace for His people, but in fact the opposite. Jesus doesn't directly answer their question because there is more that they will have to see. There's more that they will have to understand before they can understand the significance of what he has just said. 
But remember, the disciples are still struggling to understand what Jesus has told them about what would happen in Jerusalem. Right on the road down from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has repeatedly told His disciples what would happen when they get into Jerusalem. He's told them that He's going to be arrested and tried and crucified and buried, and on the third day He'll rise again. But we've seen the disciples just failing to grasp what Jesus is saying. This is so contrary to what they've been expecting that they have struggled to believe that Jesus literally meant what He said. You remember Peter went even so far as to rebuke Jesus, telling Him that, that such a thing could never happen to Him. And in the triumphal entry, the clear victory over His opponents in the temple, no doubt, had bolstered their belief that what Jesus had come to do in Jerusalem was retake Palestine from the Romans and sit on David's throne in a restored Jerusalem. But this talk of the temple being destroyed is absolutely antithetical to that. Or so it seemed. But what the disciples couldn't yet see, but what we can see, because we know how the story ends, is that what Jesus is revealing to His disciples here is more of how what He had come to truly do was far greater than anything they could have ever imagined. This destruction of the temple would not be a sign of His defeat. It would not be a sign of an unimaginably ignominious defeat as they conceived it to be, but instead it would be a sign that everything, including the temple, had come to its unimaginably glorious fulfillment in Him. And so when the Jewish revolt that began in AD 66 was answered by the Roman siege of Jerusalem and the eventual destruction of that city, including the temple in AD 70, so that all that was left standing was a single retaining wall, the wailing wall. It was not a sign that Jesus had failed as the son of David, but it was the ultimate sign that He had succeeded and done it in a way that far superseded anything that these disciples could have expected or anticipated. The destruction of that temple was the very validation that everything that Jesus had said and done was true, and all the promises of God were now yea and amen in Him. The devastation, the destruction of that temple was the declaration to all the world that the old has now gone, and the new has come come. It was the declaration that God in His marvelous grace had established a salvation that was so complete, so total, that there is now just no need for a temple or for priests or for sacrifices. But instead, it declared that through the single offering of Jesus on the cross, God had so perfected His people. He had so totally removed the guilt of their sin, so totally removed the guilt of our sin, that there was now no hindrance to total fellowship with God. What Jesus is telling them here, but what they won't understand until much later, really 
until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will come and descend upon the church, is that this physical temple isn't destined to be destroyed because Jesus has somehow failed, but its destructions would be the greatest of declarations to all the world that Jesus had succeeded and that He had done it in a way that it was as yet for these disciples unimaginably great. This temple will be destroyed because it will be replaced by an even greater temple. As God comes to take up residence no longer just with His people, but in His people, the temple will be destroyed because of God's promise, all of God's promises will be finally and fully fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Christ of Christ so totally and so completely, removing all the guilt and all the stain of our sins so absolutely that we will become the temple of God. Right? Do you remember how Paul described it in the passage that we looked at last Sunday morning in 2 Corinthians 6? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You understand the imagery he's using there? He's, he's saying that now in the church where we are brought back to Eden, God dwells amongst us and He walks amongst us just as He had done with Adam in that garden. But, but more than that, because He doesn't just dwell with us, He dwells in us. We are the temple of the living God. It's what He mentioned briefly in 1 Corinthians, first in chapter 3, when He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then again in chapter 6, He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? classic statement, of course, is found in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That first temple was destroyed by God because it was gloriously fulfilled in Christ. He is the true and better priest who offered a true and better sacrifice of Himself once and for all, so that whosoever is joined to Him by faith is able to have their sins so absolutely forgiven that they are wholly united to God, to the point that, that God by His Spirit dwells in us. The shadows and the symbols, the figures and the signs, they had done their work. And through the work that Christ would do on the cross just a few days from this point, a sinful humanity would be reunited with the holy God that so superseded that temple that it would crumble in response. Those cold, drear, 
death-damp halls, replaced by a living and vibrant temple, a total union between God and His people, those cold, drear, death-damp halls replaced by a temple in which the very life of God pulses in its, in its veins. Now, this all might seem like lofty theology, but it's vital for us to understand, for us to grasp. All the talk about a possible rebuilding of the temple. The news flashed that had a few months ago that a red heifer had been born in Israel, a true sign that a third temple would be built. You understand that all misses the point. The new covenant inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ the new covenant in His blood as He described it in the upper room means that all such things are now gone. Not because they have been lost to be replaced later, but because they have been superseded. Those old wineskins have gone and new ones have been brought in their place. And unless you understand the glorious reality of that new covenant, this glorious reality that God does not just now dwell with us, but in us, you really will not understand just how wonderful the saving work of Christ is. May God bless His Word to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for these words. We thank You for the destruction of the temple. We thank You that now in Jerusalem there is no temple to visit because a greater temple has been established. As our Lord said to His opponents, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. As John tells us, he's speaking not about the physical temple but of the temple of His own body. We thank You that by our faith in Him, we are grafted him to Him, we are joined to Him, united to Him, that His Spirit dwells in us. And we are now this new covenant temple, intimately and unbreakably joined to God, not just near God, but joined to God. Oh, Father, it is too much for our minds to grasp, but we pray for the help of Your Spirit that You would teach us more and more of this wonder of this gospel, and that we would stand in awe of Your love for us in Christ. For we pray this all in His name.